0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Susan Wingate with Dialogue Between the Lines. We had a little technical glitch there. There was a little bit of silence, but I think silence is a wonderful thing every now and again. Anyway. So here we are, Dialogue Between the Lines. This is a special show. Um, We don't normally air at 2.30 on Mondays. Our normal show airtime is 10 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Standard Time, on Tuesdays. I think I said that, Tuesday mornings. Anyway, but we have a special guest, James Rollins, who is a New York Times um, and international best-selling author on the show, and I really wanted to get him on, but we were totally booked, and I wanted to squeeze him in, and since he had some time for me, too, I thought, wonderful, let's do it. So here we are. Um, before we get going, you can find me at www.susanwingate.com, and you can find all of my books there. Everything's available on Amazon. Um, let's talk about my special guest, James Rollins. He is, an, like I said, an international best-selling author. He's a number one New York Times best-selling author of international thrillers translated into more than 40 languages. His Sigma series has been lauded as one of the top crowd-pleasers um, that's by the New York Times and one of the hottest summer reads by People Magazine. In each of his novels, he's been acclaimed for his originality and Rollins unveils Unseen World's Scientific Breakthroughs and Historical Secrets, and he does it all at breakneck speed and with stunning insight um, so that we don't have to just listen to me talking about James. I'm going to bring James on right now, and we're going to talk about you, Jim Rollins. You're on the air. Um, Great to have you. Thank you for being a guest on the show today.
0: Thank you, Susan. I appreciate it very much.
1: So um, I wanted to. Uh, first of all, I, I like to start out by asking guests how they really how they got started. I mean, you 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 didn't get started at the normal route. I mean, you didn't start reading like a crazy kid and then writing in high school and then going into college and doing creative, you know, uh, writing MFA in creative writing. You you jumped around. Tell us about that.
0: Well, I, I definitely was a reader growing up. I think anybody that's a writer uh, has that uh, that desire to or came from a background of reading. and uh, But again, uh, from third grade, I got that assignment you got uh, at some point in your elementary school. You know, your teacher sends you home to write an essay on what you want to be when you grow up. And I remember the third, it was a point of dilemma for the third grade version of myself. I remember sitting with a blank sheet of paper in front of me, not quite sure uh, you know, how to fill this out because I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian, only problem, I didn't know how to spell it. So I sat there for a while, thinking could put animal, I could put, you know, policemen or firemen and go out and play. But I did the one thing that third graders hate to do, I got the dictionary and looked it up. That determined from third grade to be a vet. <laughs> and so that was my career track, you know, that was you know, I always wanted to be a vet. You know, I, I grew up reading, you know, Black Beauty and uh James Harriet novels a little bit later on. I read all the Tarzan books, which I just love because the back of the Tarzan books they had this uh, ape to English uh dictionary, which I thought was just amazing. So that I could actually speak to apes if I could learn this language. So I was a geeky kid that loved reading and loved animals, and uh, of course, it seemed a, a more logical track to uh, you do this, this, and this. You can become a veterinarian. You could do this, this, and this, and fail miserably as a writer. So I, you know, I thought I'd be a veterinarian. And uh, but I kept reading, and there's always a, at the back of my mind this desire to want eventually maybe walk into a bookstore and see my book on a shelf. Uh, but it seemed like a pipe dream. It didn't seem anything that that practical, um, especially when I got accepted to vet school. I thought that was my adult hat. Um, oddly enough, on that first day of vet school, the uh, dean walks in and gives an introductory speech and ends the speech with probably another familiar phrase you probably remember from school, take out a sheet of paper, you're having your first pop quiz. It was a one-question quiz for the entering class of uh, the University of Missouri-Columbia Veterinary School. It was... Uh, one question. If you got it wrong, they would kick you out of that school. It was right down the word veterinarian. I was right <laughs> from third grade, though, for that for that answer. So I was, I was, you know, I was determined to be a vet. But that, you know, the other side of my brain, that you know, one side loved animals, loved medicine, loved science. The other side was a little more twisted, a little weirder. Uh, you know, it was the one that was trying to terrorize my younger brothers and sisters with the stories. Uh, the more outlandish, the better. If tears were involved, even better. Uh, my goal, you know, it's, I, so I think, you know, innately a part of me was love love to tell, tell a story. I was a storyteller, and reading was like throwing gasoline on that part of my personality. And uh, But I had my adult hat. You know, I got accepted at vet school and did that for uh, a number of years and kept reading, and so I kept throwing gasoline on that side of my brain and eventually – Life got a little bit less busier after one point, and I thought, well, like, I'm a little bit less busy. I'm going to try fitting writing into this. And so I was about 30 years old. I began picking up pen and paper and jotting down a few short stories of stuff that is now safely buried in my backyard.
1: <laughs> and then
0: eventually uh, decided to write a book, and I was lucky enough to see that first book sell. And then one book became two, and two became four, and um, 30, 30, 33 books later, here I am.
1: Wow. And how many, how many um – Brothers and sisters, were you
0: terrorizing
1: with your stories?
0: I've got I've got three brothers and three sisters, so oh. there were seven. Are, se- there were seven of us total, so I I, I have plenty of victims for my storytelling. Uh, you know, I call uh, it awesome. lying, but you know, tomatoes, tomatoes.
1: That's hysterical. Plenty of victims. I love that. And so, are you the middle child?
0: I am number uh, pr- pretty much. I'm number three, so I have I have uh, what is that, four below me, and two yeah. above me
1: wow 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 you are you're funny okay so um so your your sigma force series this is this is what you're on tour for right now, and this Correct. is called the seventh the seventh plague is your latest um in that series, and that it's an incredible uh it it's an incredible idea it's an incredible um i, I love end of time stories so this is a, a this is a fun thing for me to read. Um I, tell us a little bit about the seventh plague, the seventh plague, and th- which is your latest sigma. What is it about?
0: Well, it starts when a an archaeologist who had vanished into the Egyptian desert about two years prior, no one knew it became him and the team he vanished with uh, two years later, he comes stumbling back out of the desert. Uh, unfortunately, he dies before he can tell his story, uh, but his body sort of offers some tantalizing clues possibly to his fate. Number one, his body comes partially mummified, as though he had undergone this sort of gruesome process of mummification while still alive. And then two, he seems to be harboring a plague organism. A disease begins spreading through Cairo and beyond. Sigma Force is called in to try to figure out where this guy came from, where this organism might have originated from, because this disease begins to spread globally looking for a cure. And what's even more concerning is this one plague looks like it's likely to cascade into a series of plagues, very similar to the ten plagues that afflicted Egypt during the time of Moses.
1: I just love this this idea. I love this idea. <laughs> and um, and what I was it, this is tantalizing to me that you can this this happens. This you can start mummifying yourself should you choose. Um, tell us about that. What in the yeah, world? It's,
0: it's actually it's a true a true process. Um, there, I, again, I'm always collecting these little tidbits, little facts. And something I had in my little idea box was uh, this group of practitioners in Japan. They're called the Soku Shoku Shinbutsu, uh, Buddhas of the Flesh. And what these fellows do, they spend about a decade preparing their bodies to be so that when they die, their flesh will be preserved. It's an excruciating process. It involves uh, starvation, uh, fasting. It involves uh, drinking special teas, consuming bark that has antimicrobial properties. And once they're near their end, they entomb themselves with a little bell, and they ring that bell every morning. Once the bell stops ringing, indicating that they passed away, the tomb is sealed. And uh, then they opened the tomb again a year later. If the, if the body is indeed preserved in a pristine state, the, the body is revered as holy. Uh, if, if not, uh, they are unfortunately not considered worthy. Uh, so this is such a strange process, and this similar type of procedures uh, also occur in China and in India. And so uh, I was just fascinated by this process, and so I want to incorporate that into a book.
1: It's amazing, and so oh, okay. So, the, what are the what what? Why would they swallow stones?
0: They do that mostly just to starve, off, to stave off the uh, uh, the, the hunger, hunger they have during the period of oh
1: okay, the weight of okay. Weight
0: belly makes them feel like they've they've had a meal, so they can withstand. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it's <just laughs> a, it's a brutal process.
1: It sounds like so much fun. So. um so of course, as as a Christian uh, and understanding uh, the whole plague events that occurred, um, could these really happen again? I mean, could these could the plagues? I mean, first of all, first of all, let's go back. There are a lot of people think that the plagues of the Bible were are mythological, are 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 based in myth. Right. What do you say to about that
0: well i had a chance to travel to egypt and uh, got to chance to interview a uh, egyptologist named david roll uh he's fairly famous he's been on pbs he's had a special he's done a book uh, written a few books on, on the subject but he sort of all offers a sort of an alternate timeline to the events that uh that occur in egyptian history uh specifically looking to see if there's any verifiable proof that the events depicted in the book of Exodus of Moses, of the escape of the Israelites, of these plagues, if, if there's any any time frame in Egyptian history where, where it would match. And he was able, by, by sort of unfettering uh, the time that most people accept as Egyptian history, uh, he found a period of time in Egyptian history that seems to match that. So he sort of has a a theory or explanation that can prove that these events in the Book of Exodus actually happened. And likewise, he offered sort of a scientific explanation how this cascade of plagues might have occurred. Uh, So I was fascinated by that. Again, didn't know how to write a thriller about that, but uh, it was in my idea box. And uh, as I began building the story, uh, the story started because I was intrigued by... uh, The Zika virus, a modern-day plague, here we have an organism that originated in a monkey in Uganda, yet over a short period of time has circled the globe to the point where we've seen cases in Florida, just last month some cases in Texas, and science seems to be baffled at being able to stop this plague. You know, unfortunately, we have sort of a – we put too much faith in scientists and medicine, and we uh, are oftentimes surprised that we can't stop things, and so I – nature is tricky. You know, if we push against nature, nature has a tendency to push back. And so the Zika virus is sort of an example of that. Here we have this virus that that seems to be withstanding most of our attempts by modern science to stop it, spread, and it causes very debilitating birth defects. And and again, me being a veterinarian, I sort of studied the pathogenesis on how this disease causes this birth defect, and it's a very strange process in which it happens. And uh, that got my brain thinking, you know, gosh, you know, what if the same type of crippling birth defects only occurred in male children. And I got thinking, well, that sounds awfully a lot like almost the 10th plague of Moses, which was the, the death of the firstborn sons. Mm-hmm. And I remember, gosh, remember somewhere in my box, I had this whole uh, interview with David Roll about, you know, the these uh, Moses' 10 plagues and the, the historical basis for the book of Exodus. And so that began the... The uh, sort of the snowball effect of that story—you know—started there and just kept rolling and rolling, got bigger and bigger until eventually, the story unfolded.
1: And this story sounds amazing. We're talking with James Rollins, um, and his latest Sigma Force novel is called *The Seventh Plague*, and it's—it's it, it's out. It was out in December, wasn't it?
0: Right, came out mid-December, and uh,
1: yeah. still out there. Yay, good. And I'm—I'm I'm sure it's selling just. Well, and when it should be, this is an incredible idea, um, you know. And you, you have quite a brain. I love the way you're thinking about the uh, the plague, and that this, and then the Zika virus, and then you're bringing modern technology into the story, and, and to the point where you talk about electrical or electric bacteria. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, again, this is another example of, sort of nature surprising us. You know, no one suspected that these organisms even existed. These are bacteria that uh, their food source uh, is electricity. They feed off electricity. They actually scavenge electrons off of, of, of surfaces that have a little bit of electrical current in them. And uh, no one suspected they, they even existed. They found them accidentally. Somebody was just... Uh, Sticking electrodes in this area of mud, this mud bank, and they were shocking the mud bank, and lo and behold, up come these organisms to feed. No one suspected they existed. They've discovered there's about 12 different species found around the globe that do this. Um, I love the fact that that's you know nature still surprises in this manner. Uh, right now, different labs are trying to find practical uses for these strange organisms. Uh, some, one lab is looking to, to, to produce these living bio cables, these living bacterial cables that can transmit electricity. Another one is investigating whether these could be little batteries for, for nanomachines, things that might be able to have industrial purposes. So, again, uh, a real fact, even though it sounds outlandish and strange, of course, me being a thriller writer, I'm wondering, well, what if one of these organisms was infectious? What might that disease yeah. look like? And of course, you're going to find out if you read the book.
1: Oh wow, that is amazing! So, and and so the electric bacteria—that that is—that's true. This is fact. This isn't part. I mean, of course, you you're utilizing this true thing in nature into your. You're incorporating it into your story, but this is. This is real, these yeah, electric the organism, bacteria.
0: organism is, they're, they're real. There's, like I said, 12 different species that have been discovered. Um, so you can you go online and you can actually see pictures of them and read more about them. In fact, at the end of my book, I have a what's true and what's not section where I sort of uh, pull back the curtains a little bit and sort of separate things. You know, fiction from fact, and you're going to find out exactly how much of the book is based on on reality, and if there's any topics that anybody's intrigued by. I uh, hopefully leave them a few breadcrumbs to follow. So, uh, so yeah, it's a great deal of fun of, of mixing fact and fiction, and, and trying to blend it so well that it's hard to tell tell the difference between the two.
1: Absolutely, and you can find James Rollins at jamesrollins.com. And, of course, in all the bookstores, brick and mortar, online, all the major um, uh, online book distributors, um, everywhere. And uh, But um, definitely check out his website. It's awesome, by the way. It's a beautiful website.
0: Well, thank you. There's also a whole thank section you. on the website for anybody that wants to be an author. There's sort of a a uh, sort of writer's little corner where hopefully I offer some tidbits uh, rather than, you know, reinvent the wheel. You know, check out the website. You can hopefully uh, learn a few tips.
1: Yeah. So also, um, in the seventh plague, during that adventure tale, you also raise some concerns about climate. How does that play out in your book?
0: Well, I... I don't want to go into a great deal on how it plays out but it it is uh, again it's not the book's not a diatribe about climate change but you know definitely something seems to be happening uh i spent some time in the arctic researching this novel and was able to see about the the amount of glacier uh receding that's occurring up there and uh so you know november december were the hottest months that they just made a declaration that 2016 was the hottest year on record and uh, again, I love sort of exploring these topical things in my in my book. But in this book, I'm specifically looking at, you know, what what can we do if if this is truly happening? You know, what's what is our what's our uh, what can we do to try to stop this from happening? And you know, where where are we headed with that? And there's a, I was reading about these these big massive projects. They're called geoengineering, and this is sort of what I call the hail mary passes by scientists if if we go past the point of no return, which some people believe we're already at that point. And these are huge, gigantic projects. They're like, uh, one of them flooding Death Valley so that the uh, we can keep the oceans from uh, rising too fast. One is wrapping Greenland in a blanket. Um, even uh, uh, Bill Gates is involved in a project for building a big space shield, these le- the thousands of lenses, uh, 100 square miles of lenses that are going to reflect the sun away from the Earth. So there's all these different... Uh, uh, big gigantic projects but of course it's hard to deal with when you're talking about global level of projects whether you know what can go wrong and so something we explore in this novel is you know there's so many variables that are in place for when we're talking about these global wide engineering projects and so in my book I sort of you know if somebody actually attempted that what might be the consequences to that how that ties into electrobacteria bacteria and and the seven plagues—you're gonna to have to read the book to find out.
1: Right, right. And and how how successful have we been at battling nature in the past, ever?
0: Well, right. Uh, again, we we seem to uh, think we know more than we do. Uh, Was always uh, you know when it comes to uh, there's like histories of people. Trying to use one species against another—that's to create, you know, chaos. We've seen people try to, uh, uh, you know, harness different energies that have gone awry. So it's a, uh, it's, you know, at this point we there are so many variables when it comes to sometimes deal with nature. Nature is a big interconnected web that when you begin pulling one thread, the whole thing can come apart.
1: Absolutely. I mean, flooding Death Valley seems like a, a, just a mass. Extinction of everything that lives there, right. flora yeah. and fauna.
0: And when it comes to, you know, when, and again, once you start taking out these, like there was, I was just reading a study about the removal of the gray wolves from, um, from Yellowstone right. and how much destruction that actually caused because right. then the deer and the elk overgrew, they consumed more vegetation, they lost habitat because of that. And once they reintroduced uh, the wolves, we saw the populations of deer and elk go back to normal. These deforested areas that were being consumed by the overabundance of deer and elk uh, were, were um, getting better again. So, you, again, you can't just, you know, pluck something out and assume that there's no not going to be any consequences.
1: No, everything works together for a reason, and uh, we're we're very good as human beings of – Picking things apart and saying, "Well, let's just take this out because it's really bothering us." So, um, <laughs> but yeah, well, anyway, it's
0: a myopic look at things. We have tendency to focus on one element and not realizing exactly how uh, interconnected. If you, you pull out that one thread, what might else, you know, what else might be tattered apart?
1: Exactly. Everybody, we're talking with James Rollins, and his latest novel is called The Seventh Plague. It's his. It's the 12th, is that correct, 12th book in the Sigma Force series?
0: Correct, number 12.
1: Good gravy. How many books do you have you written? (laughs) I I know.
0: That is is my 33rd book, so I've attempted to destroy the world 33 times. Uh, (laughs) But luckily I do have a couple more schemes in my back pocket for at least a couple more books.
1: Oh, that's good for us to know for sure. Anyway, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, James Rollins, jamesrollins.com. It's been just an absolute pleasure. And anytime you want to come back and talk about your next book that's coming out, please, please let me know, okay?
0: I love it, Susan. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. You take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Everybody, that was James Rollins. You can find him, again, at jamesrollins.com. You can find him on all major online booksellers as well as brick-and-mortar everywhere around the globe. He's uh, been, like I said in the beginning, translated into over 40 different languages. Good grief. And uh, um, just a great guy, incredible imagination. And uh, you've got to get his books. So um, back to tomorrow, Uh, another great author, Vincent Zandri, is going to be on the show tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody, thank you for listening in to my special airing with James Rollins. Take care. Bye-bye.